It was 17, 1978 rather. And the two men walked slowly up the Bavarian hill. They were less than 15 miles from noisy Munich, and yet a hush descended upon them both. Deep embarrassment began to fill the space where conversation once lay. And the two men wandered in silence. Werner, a German historian, and Jean-Marie, a French railroad worker. The two men walked past the stony memorials and past the old ammunition factory now closed. For these days, the medieval city was only remembered for one thing, Dachau, Dachau concentration camp, the very first of Hitler's evil penitentiaries. And the historian knew the records only too well, for Werner had been here before. Werner knew that less than 40 years ago, this, this place was a place of absolute terror. Political prisoners and Jews made up its bleak population, and over 40,000 of them did not make it out alive. But as for the French railroad worker, Jean-Marie, he had never been here before. He had never seen the shameful devastation and the brutality or come face to face with the horror and the disgrace of what humans can do to each other. And so violently, the silence broke. And Jean-Marie supposedly turned to Werner and lamented with tear-stained face, I did not choose my father. I did not choose my father. For despite the inability to prove it outright, until his death seven years later, Jean-Marie Leroux was convinced by his mother that to his great shame, he was the only son of Adolf Hitler. I did not choose my father. Or whether Jean-Marie had the truth about his father or not, his statement is true, is it not? Indeed, Jean-Marie's statement was true not only for him, but for Werner in 1978, and for every single one of us here in 2023. For no child ever chooses their father. And I wonder how you feel about that. No doubt for some of us here, the fact that we did not choose our fathers will stir up great thankfulness. We see that the great men that our fathers were or still are to this day, and we are overcome with appreciation as we realize that though we did not choose them, they were given to us for our great blessing. However, for many others of us here, no doubt, we are overcome with a different emotion. Indeed, for some of us here, we lament something of what Jean-Marie lamented. That the legacy of our father hangs over us like a shroud. And far from blessings, we look back with lament as we think of all the curses that they brought us. For some here, perhaps we lament a legalistic father. A dictator-like father who treated us like a soldier who made us feel that the only thing that, that ever mattered was our slavish obedience to the rules. For others here, perhaps we lament a cold father, a distant father who was always too busy, who, who made us feel like every cry for help was an imposition upon their precious time. 
For others, perhaps, we lament the fact that Papa was a rolling stone, as the Temptations famously sang. That we had a father who basically disowned us, a father who walked out, who left us wondering whether we really were his child or not. For others still, perhaps the shame comes not from our, our father's legalism or, or lack of help or even leaving home, but simply from their lack of provision. For some here, as we remember our fathers, we recall not empty laws, not empty looks, but we recall the heartache of empty larders. We recall the hurt of empty promises, of vacations by the beach. We recall the pain of, of empty bank accounts when they passed by. For unlike so many of our peers who were funded through college by rich fathers and then given an estate upon their death, some of us were given nothing. So that even now when we check our bank balances today, we try to console ourselves by muttering under our breaths those, those words of Jean-Marie Leroux. I did not choose my father. I did not choose my father. Well, friends, whoever we are this morning, whatever camp we find ourselves in, whoever our earthly fathers were or still are, my, my simple aim this morning is that every believer here leaves being able to comfort themselves with the wonderful words, I did not choose my heavenly father. For my simple aim is that every Christian here may leave with an unshakable confidence of knowing a heavenly father who is the precise antithesis of all the possible curses of an earthly father that we have just lamented. Indeed, a father who bestows more blessings on his children than we can ever dream of. A father whose blessings only give us further confidence that we are indeed his children because he is a father who none of us chose but is a father who amazingly chose us. For my friend, if you are a Christian, if you're a follower of Christ, if you chose to, to repent and have trusted Jesus Christ, whether that be 50 years ago or 15 years ago or just a few days ago, you were chosen by God long before that. For Ephesians chapter 1, blessed be the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ and with every spiritual blessing for he chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world. In love he predestined us for adoption to himself. And friends, if you trust this gospel if you trust those words that we have sung this morning, you have been adopted by God. You are his child. Because before the, the, the foundations of world history, he chose you. He adopted you and did so to bless you. But some of us here will nervously reply, well, how do I know? How do I know? For on certain days like, like Jean-Marie, I, I am convinced by my childhood story and what others have said about my past. But on other days, 
I feel as though my adoption, my, my sonship is somehow always cloaked in doubt as Jean-Marie's sonship story ultimately still is. Some here will see the blessings of having such a heavenly father, but they will be unsure if they have been adopted. They nervously ask, how do I know that God has really chosen me? Well, the answer to that key question is found in the chapter that we've been looking at recently. For the answer to that question is found in Romans chapter 8. As the Apostle Paul reminds similarly nervous Christians in Rome that they have been adopted by God because they have received his Holy Spirit. For as Paul explains, the Holy Spirit, although being the, 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 the person of the Godhead, the Spirit is also like the, the divine life-giving DNA that now runs through every believer, giving them confidence that they are the sons and daughters of God. For as we saw two weeks ago, the Spirit was described as the Spirit of life, verse 2. While our earthly fathers gave us flesh, and so minds set on fleshly desires that lead us to death, our heavenly Father has given the Christian the Spirit, and so minds now set on spiritual things that lead to life. Accordingly, because of that, that, that divine DNA given by God, that, that spirit of life now in them, the Christian gains confidence when they live new lives. For verse 13, just look with me to where we ended last time. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. In short, someone has confidence that they are no longer a child of the flesh, but a child of God when they no longer drift through life like deadwood, down the river of disobedience that leads to death, but when they are enlivened by the Spirit to fight against the tide of sin in their life. For as we saw last time, the Spirit of life guarantees that we will battle sin. But this morning, as we move to this next section, the Spirit is not described as the Spirit of life that guarantees battling, but rather is described as the Spirit of adoption that guarantees blessing. Last time, the Spirit of life guarantees battling. This time, the Spirit of adoption guarantees blessing. For as Paul moves to this next description of the Spirit, he, he reminds his, his nervous Roman Christian friends that they can now know that they have God as their Father, that they have been adopted, chosen by God, not only by counting their spiritual battles, but by also counting their spiritual blessings. And so this morning, that's what we're going to do. We're going to count that the blessings of sonship, the blessings of having the spirit of adoption and knowing that God has chosen us. And as you can see from your service sheets, there are five. There are five blessings to marvel at. And the first of these is sun-like obedience. Point one this morning. It's from verses 14 to 15. The spirit of adoption guarantees the blessings 
of obedience like a son. Obedience like a son. Now, some of you may ask, how is this obedience any different to what we looked at two weeks ago? And you'd be right. There is no difference. For our spirit-led obedience to our heavenly Father is seen in putting to death sin in our lives. Verses 13 and 14 are essentially saying the same thing. Indeed, being led by the Spirit, verse 14, is not about being led to do something other than obey God. Just as a brief aside, that is important because some people often take this verse out of context. Some people employ being led by the Spirit as basically a trump card to do something pretty weird and pretty unwise. I just felt led by the Spirit to quit my job. Just felt led by the Spirit to move to Antarctica. Just felt led by the Spirit to propose to the girl that I've only met once. No. Being led by the Spirit of verse 14 is the putting to death of sin in verse 13. But what I want us to see here is not the inevitability of obedience because we have the Spirit, but the blessing of how the obedience is done because we have the Spirit. But let us look carefully at how the Spirit-led child obeys his father. Verse 14, look down with me. For all who are led by the Spirit, that is all who obey God, are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons. Can you see what Paul is saying here? He's saying that there are two ways of obeying God and that some people try to obey God in a spirit of slavery. Indeed, some actually, verse 15, fall back into a cursed, enslaved, religious obedience. For somewhere along the line, like some of these law-obsessed Christians to whom Paul writes, some sometimes fall into the danger of seeing God less like a father and more like a Fuhrer. They start to picture God like Hitler, just the Hitler on the right side of history. And so they start to obey God out of, out of performance-based acceptability. They start to count the days since they last sinned. And they are proud when they can say it's been this long. And they are petrified of punishment when they fall into that sin again. And Christians who try to obey God like this, well, they are not only in grave danger of unpicking that gospel of grace, but in my experience, such Christians become gravely depressed. For their failure to recognize God as their father, their failure to grasp this, this, this blessed spirit of adoption leads them to fearful slavery which focuses on divine law and not fearless sonship that focuses on divine relationship. Let me say that again. For their failure to recognize God as their father their failure to grasp this blessed spirit of adoption leads them to fearful slavery which focuses on divine law and not fearless sonship which focuses on divine relationship. And you know, I'd be really surprised if many here do not very sadly live like that at times. 
Indeed, without wanting to psychoanalyze everybody here, if we are those who live with very legalistic earthly fathers, dictator-like fathers who treated us like soldiers, who made us feel that the only thing that ever mattered was, was our slavish obedience to their directions, if we never grew up in a home where our father said, no matter what you do, you will always be my child. If we grew up thinking that sonship was tied to rules and not relationship, then sadly we're probably more prone to fall into this pattern when it comes to how we think about obedience to our heavenly father. And my friends, Christian thinking like that will not bring blessing. Indeed, most of the time, it won't even bring obedience. No, no, the blessing and often the victory that comes in, in, in obeying God is found when we rightly see ourselves as his sons and not his slaves. When we rightly see that we have already been adopted, chosen by him, and that nothing that we can do can alter that glorious status. Friends, when obedience is not characterized by the fear of, of losing that relationship, but on the certainty of our adoption, we're actually freed up to obey our Heavenly Father. Any friends, if you're, if you're struggling with a particular area of sin right now, I wonder how a meditation of your son-like status and the fact that you've been given the spirit of adoption might actually better help you battle that particular sin. For the spirit of adoption guarantees the blessing of obeying like a son. But moving on, that's not the only blessing and assurance that the spirit of adoption brings the Christian. For secondly, the spirit of adoption guarantees the blessing of dependence. That's point two. The spirit of adoption guarantees the blessing of dependence like a son. Verse 15 again, we did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoptions as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. Despite going to seminary and despite it being the language that Jesus spoke, uh, there are few Aramaic words that I know, but there is one. Uh, that I learned it uh, when I was a little boy in Sunday school. Uh, the word is Abba. And if you two went to Sunday school growing up, you may have learned that the Abba in Aramaic means daddy. And as a result, you two may have been taught that, the, that Romans 8.15 reminds Christians that they too can call God Father, that, 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 that we can call what Jesus called God. Christians can call God Daddy. And strictly speaking, that is true. However, the danger of separating Jesus' words from their original setting is that as a little boy, Abba always made me imagine that, that calling God Daddy was a bit sentimental. Indeed, as I pictured a child of God saying Abba, as a little boy, I would always picture some kind of whimsical 1950s scene where some angelic five-year-old girl knelt in prayer by their perfectly made bed, hot chocolate by the, the bedside table. Good night, Abba. Good night, Daddy. She would pray sweetly as she drifted off to sleep. And yet that image 
is a far cry from the reality when Jesus employed the word. For when does Jesus pray, Abba, Father? Well, actually, it's when he's in so much pain, he cannot even get to sleep. For he cries out, Abba, Father, in Mark 14, in the Garden of Gethsemane. He cries out, Abba, Father, not by a cup of hot chocolate, but when the cup of God's wrath is before him, and he longs for any other way to obey his Father. He cries out, Abba, Father, when his soul is overwhelmed to the point of death. When his blood vessels constricted and then dilated to the point of rupture, when he sweated blood, Jesus cries out, Abba, Father, when obedience reaches almost breaking point. And so the cry of Abba, Father is no sentimental, sweet nothing, but the cry of a true son suffering in battle. It is the cry of a son who seeks his father's will and and knows that though the road of obedience is often hard and lonely and full of suffering, his father will hear him, for his father will not leave him, for his father is dependable. A few years ago, a theologian, Russell Moore, described the moment when he knew that he'd become a father for the first time. For in his book, Moore describes the months leading up to the adoption of his two one-year-old sons somewhere in the former Soviet Union. And he begins by describing the eeriness of his first visit to his boy's orphanage. Indeed, he describes that the deep sadness that he felt when he walked the, the, the orphanage corridors and could hear no cries at all. For this orphanage was filled with ins- infants who had actually learned to stop crying because they knew that they had no parent who would ever respond to them. Indeed, when Russell and his wife entered the room of his soon-to-be-adopted sons, neither boy made a sound. In fact, every day when he and his wife entered the room, they entered in silence and they left in silence. But on that very last day, when they left the room for the last time to go and fill in the adoption paperwork, one of the boys let out a guttural yell that pierced the silence and echoed all the way down the corridors. And in Russell's own words, he says this. In that moment, and maybe for the first time, I was struck by the force of the Abba Father passages. For my little boy's scream changed everything. For it was in that moment in his recognizing that he would now be heard, that he went from being an orphan to being a son. Up until that time, I had read the Abba Father passages in the same way that I'd heard them preached as a gurgle of familiarity, the spiritual equivalent of an infant cooing. But then I realized that the point of Abba Father was not to evoke sentimentality. Abba Father is the cry of a suffering son who knows that he can cry out to his father. A child who has the amazing blessing of knowing that they do have someone now who hears, who can be depended on in their darkest hour. Some of us here, as I mentioned before, may lament an earthly father who is cold, a distant father who is always too busy, who made them feel like every cry was an imposition upon their precious time. My Christian friends, if that is you, know that your heavenly father is nothing like that. No, your heavenly father has given you the spirit of adoption 
So that just like Jesus, in the midst of your suffering, you might cry out to him in total dependence and know that he is there. And so friends, what blessed confidence is found when obedience-induced suffering comes to us too and we get to cry out by the spirit of adoption, Abba. And so confirm to ourselves in that very painful moment that we have a father who is no longer distant, but dependable until the end. Indeed, I wonder how this truth reframes your own suffering when, when seeking to be godly. When you shut down that laptop lid in obedience, in determination not to watch pornography with a pain cry of Abba, Father. And in that moment, you get that blessed assurance of your adoption. When you shut the door on that gossipy conversation about another Christian who has previously upset you in obedience with the pain cry of Abba, Father. And in that moment, you get the blessed assurance of your adoption. What obedience to God is causing you to suffer right now? What painful battle cry with sin is causing you to cry out, Abba, Father? Friend, have you ever considered that God might just be using your cry? In fact, all your cries amid your crosses to confirm to you that you are his child and that he's always with you and that he can be depended on even when obedience Induced suffering is very great. The spirit of adoption guarantees the blessing of dependence like a son. And thirdly, the spirit of adoption guarantees the blessing of assurance like a son. Verse 16. The spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. What does the spirit of adoption do? What have we seen so far? Well, we've already seen that, that, that he leads Christians. The spirit of adoption leads us in son-like obedience to the Father as we listen to God's words, and he leads us like a son in crying out to the Father when we then obey God's words. But here the spirit does more than just lead. He, he does more than just hold our hand. The spirit speaks. He, he bears witness Indeed, he testifies like, like a witness in the courtroom. And to whom does he speak and what does he say? Well, amazingly, that the spirit of adoption speaks to us. Indeed, actually, if we look carefully, he, he speaks with our own spirit. For at times, we will nervously say to ourselves, yes, I, I, I think that I'm a child of God. I think I do love following Jesus. Yes, I am pulling up the weeds of sin. Yes, I am growing in, in Christ's likeness. And in that moment, Paul says that sometimes the spirit of adoption will guarantee the blessing of assurance like a son. For in that moment, whether we're conscious of it or not, the spirit of adoption will sidle up to our spirits and will whisper in the silence of very nervous hearts, yes, your, your spirit, in your spirit, in your inner thoughts, that, that they are right. You are a child of God. You, you do love to follow Jesus. You are pulling at the weeds of sin. You are growing in Christ like fruit. I am a witness and I see it too. Now that might not be a particularly strong feeling. It might not be audible. 
It might not be for more than a second. Indeed, we might not really be able to distinguish his voice from, from our own inner human voice. But sometimes, says Paul, the spirit of adoption will assure us in a special way that we are a child of God. For although we may have known earthly fathers who have failed to assure us that, that we are theirs, our heavenly father wonderfully gives us his spirit of adoption. His spirit who assures us, even in the silence, that we are his children. The spirit of adoption guarantees the blessings of obedience like a son, dependence like a son, assurance like a son, and perhaps most amazingly of all, blessing number four, inheritance like a son. Verse 16 again. His spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. In the penultimate chapter of George Eliot's epic tale, Silas Marner, set in Northern England in the 19th century, a teenage girl called Epi is faced with the greatest choice of her life. For in the, in the final few pages, Epi must choose who her father will be and who she will live with permanently. She must choose between, between her natural father, the rich Mr. Cass, who disowned her as a little girl, but now returns with the promise of inheriting a great estate, or Epi must choose her adoptive father, the poor weaver, Silas Marner, who lovingly adopted her as a little girl, but now can no longer provide much of a future at all for her. And so the book essentially comes down to this scene, to this choice. Mr. Cass strongly urges Epi to go with him. He says, I have a natural claim on her that must stand before every other. And he proceeds to talk about the, the clothes that, the, that Epi might have and the great men that she could marry and the great dances and the parties and the rich estate, which will all be hers. But Epi replies, thank you, sir, for your offer. It is very great, but I should have no delight in that life if I was forced to go away from my adoptive father knowing that he was sitting here and feeling all alone. We've been used to being happy together, even in poverty, and he is taking care of me. And I should not know what to do with all the fine things as I have not been used to them. Too often, I think, Christians, indeed particularly teenage Christians, are made to think that at some point they must make a choice like teenage Epi. Will I choose my natural fleshy father? Will I, will I choose the, the clothes and the riches and the dances? Will, will, I, will I inherit the world and all that it offers? Or will I stick with my God, my adoptive father, the God who's been very good growing up, the God who, who might be lonely without me if I decide to leave the church? God who is very kind, but ultimately very poor, for he has no great worldly estate to give. Friends, that is not, that is not the choice that is laid before any of us ever, teenagers, college students, or otherwise. 
For firstly, it is really not our own choice. Because as we've seen, we do not choose our Father. Our Heavenly Father wonderfully chooses us, and we who have been chosen by Him can never be taken away from Him. No matter what the natural man offers. But secondly, our Heavenly Father is no Silas Marner. Our Heavenly Father is certainly no poor 19th century weaver from northern England. As I mentioned previously, some of us here may have had fathers who did not provide for us. We recall the heartache of little food and little clothing and few fun vacations. We recall the heartache of of learning upon their death that we got nothing. No money, no house, no inheritance. But friends, again, our Heavenly Father is nothing like that. For the Spirit bears witness that we are His children and that because we are His children, we are His heirs. And so we are heirs of the creator of the world. My, My Christian brothers and sisters, it is a stunning thought, an almost unbelievable thought. But we who are the children of God through Christ, that great older brother, we will inherit the whole world. And so the next time you get out a globe, or you look at the map of the world, whisper quietly next to it, mine, mine. For for friends, as, as children of the creator of the world, it is coming to you. You want the beautiful rivers of Tennessee or the rolling English countryside or the glaciers of Canada or the beaches of Thailand or the northern lights of Finland. It's all yours. For with the maker of the world as your father, the world is stunningly your inheritance. And oh, oh how we will not be disappointed by it when we get it. Therefore, if we can marvel, if we can marvel at the beauty of this world when it's broken, if we can marvel at at trees and and fields and and rivers and, 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 and the pink moon and the orange sunrise... Do you really think that at the end of time, when this world is given to us as heirs in all its perfection, that we will just shrug and say, it's okay, it's okay. It's not like the big house in downtown Franklin. It's not the party on Broadway. Or as good as the temporary vacation that my natural fleshy father offered. And you know, too often, too too often as we journey through life as Christians, we, we stop talking about that inheritance. I think many of us as Christians kind of lose that, that childlike, are we nearly there yet? And as we drive to that forever blessed vacation just around the corner, that rich inheritance that the Father has planned out for us, sometimes we, we stop eagerly asking, as children often do, Father, when, when, what does the vacation house look like? How many rooms are there? How green is the grass in the garden? Will there be walks in the sunshine? Will the waters be clean and crisp? Will there be dancing and laughter? Somewhere along the line, many of us lose that that childlike desire, that, that, that go on, Dad. Tell us again what it'll be like. Indeed, many seem to think that the, that the mature Christianity is found in, in pondering how we make the journey to the inheritance a little bit better. 
rather than pondering the inheritance itself. Christians consider and spend many an hour thinking about how they might not squabble on the journey. Spend much of their time reading Christian books on on, on better marriages here and better churches here and, and better Christian business practices here. And obviously that's not wrong. But too often we don't make enough time to reread that simple picture book of what heaven will be like and the inheritance that is coming to us because that is where our Father is taking us. Friends, if you are a child of God, make time to ponder your blessed inheritance. It is great and it is yours by the spirit of adoption. And yet... And yet, as we, if we read verse 17 very carefully, we discover that, that actually this inheritance is even greater than we first imagined. For as we read verse 17 very carefully, we see that the inheritance that, that Paul has in mind is not just a place that God intends to bestow on us, but that actually a person that God intends to bestow on us. For actually the inheritance is the Father himself. Verse 17, if children of God, then heirs of God. Can you see? There's a sense in which the greatest inheritance possible, just as Epi saw in Silas Mana, is the inheritance of a forever loving father. And as the children of God, as those made for a relationship with him, that there is nothing better than the inheritance of him. Now, some of you will say, but, but sometimes I don't feel like that. I don't feel that joy for my father. Sometimes I'm not sure if he excites me the very most about my inheritance. Well, no. The more time you spend with him, the more you'll feel that. And know that in heaven you will feel that completely. For you will be holier then than, than ever before. Than, than even the priests in Deuteronomy who said, I need no physical place in the promised land. The Lord is my inheritance. You'll be like the holy Asaph in Psalm 73, who said, whom have I in heaven but you? There is nothing on earth that I desire by you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart, my inheritance forever. There are many descriptions of heaven that I really enjoy. But my favorite description comes from an Irishman named Ezekiel Hopkins who wrote, heaven is a place of the greatest love where father and son shall be finally united and where the unveiled glories of God himself shall beat full upon us and we will forever sun ourselves in the smiles of the father. Isn't that wonderful? A spirit of adoption guarantees the blessing of inheritance like a son. And so with that full and fatherly reunion in mind, as that full and fatherly reunion set as our certain tomorrow, what task must the sons of God set themselves to today? Well, the obvious answer, last point, is that if we know that we are the sons of God, we will work like the sons of God. Final verse, and with this we shall go out into our new week. Verse 17, and if children, then heirs, 
heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. As we scan the history books of great American retail, uh, we will come across many successes of father and son businesses. Indeed, in the news just the other day, uh, I was reading about uh, Patrick Sullivan Sr. and Patrick Sullivan Jr., uh, who now make over 12 million a year through their business, Jigsaw Health, which is, uh, so the article told me, America's number one time-release magnesium supplement company. And whilst I know what those two words, time release and, and magnesium supplement, mean separately, I have no idea what they mean together. Nevertheless, I, I got the gist of their father and son health business when I went to their website, and I found out that their company slogan is time release magnesium supplements. It's fun to feel good because life is way too short to feel crappy. It's fun to feel good because life is way too short to feel crappy. In the final verse of our passage this morning, Paul calls once nervous Christians who now know that they are the children of God to boldly join the great father and son business. And what line of work is the father and son business in? Well, as you can see, the line of work is all about two words, which upon initial reading are even more oddly paired together than time release and, and magnesium supplements. For the line of work is suffering and glory. Off the production line comes suffering and glory. And yet, like the magnesium supplements, there is a time release element to them. For there is a clear order to this production line. Suffering now, glory later. Suffering now, glory later. And so in many ways, that the slogan of the heavenly father and the heavenly son business is the very opposite to jigsaw health. For the heavenly father, heavenly son slogan is not it's fun to feel good because life's too, way too short to feel crappy. But rather something like it is hard to feel suffering but eternal life is forever and we will be glorified. So let me really simply ask you as we close, if you consider yourself an adopted child of God, have you grasped the family business plan yet? Final point, or rather final question, as the spirit of adoption works in you, are you resembling a son? It is this suffering now glory later company that the one that you have understood yourself to have joined? Is this what you understand Christianity to be about? Or are you surprised by the production line? Or at least surprised by the order in which the things come off the production line? Friends, as you look at the J-shaped pattern, that, that J-shaped pattern of the career path of the first son, the very son of God, Jesus, is that the career path that you are expecting to follow? 
For can he see that, that if you are a son of God, if you have the same spirit of sonship as Christ in you, if the great and glorious inheritance of that family business is coming, if glory is your tomorrow, like it was with Jesus, then can you see that suffering has to be your today? And friends, that's so important to remember. Because sadly, there are many other forms of Christianity that seek to deny and deface the family business motto. That seek to turn the church into just a health company. There are people, even standing up in churches today, who say that the path of Christianity is not suffering now, glory later, but no suffering now and glory now. And friends, as lovers of comfort, we will all be in danger of falling for those lies. For many may think that they know what I'm talking about. For they have seen some of the televangelists in Nigeria who promise that Christianity brings material blessing, who promise gullible Christians of faster cars and bigger houses and more money if they really are sons of God. But is that really any different from some of those counselors in Nashville who promise that Christianity brings relational blessing, who promise gullible Christians suffering-free marriages and successful businesses if they really are the sons of God. Friends, if we are the sons of God like Jesus, we are in the business of suffering now. Suffering now. And we will suffer not just the pain of this broken world, but we will suffer specifically when we seek to live as Jesus lived. When we love all people just like Jesus did. No matter the color of their skin or their age development, we may suffer as Jesus did. When we uphold marriage and yet at the same time rejoice in singleness like Jesus did, we may suffer as Jesus did. When we say that, that Christ had to die, because everybody is morally bankrupt, we may suffer as Jesus did. When we say that the only way to the Father is through the Son, like Jesus did, we may suffer like Jesus did. Because the Christian life is often hard. Our obedience is hard, dependence is hard, assurance is hard. The inheritance sometimes feels far away. But we have a wonderful heavenly father who has given us the spirit of adoption that we may know that we are sons even as we suffer like sons for we await glory like sons. Let's pray. Gracious God and heavenly father, we we thank you that you're just that. Father, we thank you that we are your children in Christ. Father, we thank you that you have given us wonderfully the spirit of adoption, that he lives in us. And Father, we thank you for all of the many blessings that come from that that we've thought about this morning. Father, we thank you that we get to obey you as sons and not slaves. We thank you that we get to cry out to you as sons. 
We, we thank you that you are assurers of our sonship. We thank you for that wonderful inheritance to come because we are your sons, your heirs. And so, Father, by your Spirit, would you help us to live like sons? Would you please help us to suffer like faithful sons and daughters now as all glory awaits us? It is through your Son that we pray all these things. Amen.